The following message was given at Trinity Bible Church in Powell, Wyoming. I invite you to open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 2. We're looking at Hebrews 2, verses 11 through 13 today, and we're continuing to consider the wonder of the Incarnation, which is what our section just happens to cover in the providence of God during this time of year when we think of it. And uh, I want to give um, two disclaimers to the sermon today. Oh boy, I'm giving a disclaimer to the sermon. Uh, The first is, this is probably going to be very difficult for some of you to hear. So, just bear with it. We're going to go through some difficult, uh, deep waters in the sense of, it's going to kind of hit close to home. Uh, But but bear with it, because we are going to turn our eyes to Christ. Uh, The second thing is that the first half of the sermon is the introduction. And the second half is uh, the point. So when I get to the points, I'm not just beginning, okay? Um, I'm halfway over. So it's going to be about the same length. So those are the two disclaimers. But let's now turn to Hebrews 2, 11 through 13 and hear the living word of God. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source or are all out of one This is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. This concludes the reading of God's holy and inspired word. May God now be pleased to add his blessing to it. Last week we covered uh, how the incarnation deals with our sin. And when it comes to our salvation, that is something we tend to talk most about. Sin and guilt, the objective things we have done uh, against God's law that are worthy of eternal punishment and how our Lord has delivered us from eternal hell by taking that upon himself on the cross. We also tend to think about uh, the, the sins that we struggle with that we need to turn from. And this is where uh, a lot of uh, counseling comes in and focuses on uh, how we turn from sin or how we're delivered from things like depression and anxiety and other difficulties. But in all of this, something is missing. Something that's really at the root of our sin. And that is shame. Shame. Ed Welch. The Christian counselor defines shame as the deep sense that you are unacceptable because of something you did, something done to you, or something associated with you. Shame is where you feel exposed as an ugly, rejected, and worthless thing. Filthy, dirty, defiled, contaminated. Unpresentable. It's the feeling that you are unpresentable and need to hide or cover yourself. Usually we try to do that with a shell of self-righteousness, a shell of works, or some other goodness or beauty to make ourselves presentable. It's the opposite of shame is honor, dignity, and worth. And we want to present ourselves and be received in that manner. Uh, We feel shame most when we get embarrassed, 
turned red in the face or humiliated or something like that. Uh, we look bad before others. It's why the number one fear is not death. You know what the number one fear is? Public speaking. I'm doing the, 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 the thing that's feared most. Even though it's death is right up there with it. But the reason why is, what if I look bad before others and others see my faults and others see my inadequacies and others see my blemishes? But when we are confident that we can present ourselves as honorable because we have some sort of covering, then that's when we have confidence before others. But a lack of confidence that, uh, that we can present ourselves to others when I'm not so confident that I can do that so as to guarantee honor instead of shame, that's when we want to withdraw and hide. I think that's why we would prefer a monologue than small talk. i got to be there with somebody else and I'm too close and, and it just feels so awkward. That is That reveals shame. Now, the temptation may be to think that shame only happens when we are embarrassed or turned right in the face or when we are before others. But shame is deeply rooted in each and every one of us, even when we don't detect it. This is actually what Scripture focuses on. You remember the last thing that Scripture said about Adam and Eve in their innocent state? They were, they were both naked and what? Unashamed. Isn't that interesting? The last thing Scripture wants to tell you about their innocent state is that they had no shame. They were unashamed. And then what's the first thing that Scripture brings up after they had fallen into sin? It says that they knew that they were naked. Now, does that mean that they just had this great revelation that they didn't have any clothes on. I wonder why I'm so drafty here in the garden. You know, and then after they sin, the very first thing they realize, oh, silly us, we didn't have any clothes on. We should make some clothes. That way we're not so drafty. It doesn't feel so drafty here in the garden. Even though I, I think the weather was perfect. But you understand what I'm saying. That's not what they thought. Scripture uses the word no. In the sense of an intimate acquaintance with something. Hence, in the next chapter, Adam knew his wife and she conceived and gave birth to a child. No, in Genesis 3, where it says they knew their nakedness, means that they were intimately acquainted with their nakedness. That is, they felt it. They felt exposed. They felt unpresentable. And now they ran for cover, not, be, not before God, because God had not yet come on the scene, but before one another. The most intimate of relationships. They wanted to hide from one another now. They wanted to cover themselves. They did not feel like they were presentable. And there's nothing wrong or shameful about the way God made their bodies. It wasn't until sin entered the world that they wanted to hide from one another even in the most intimate of relationships, the marriage relationship, human relationships, now they felt unpresentable, exposed, feeling like a dirty, filthy thing, and immediately tried to cover themselves with the work of their own hands. 
This is shame. It's the feeling of being unpresentable. It makes us want to hide. Because of sin, we feel dirty. We feel exposed. We feel undignified. We want to stay away from people or be able to control our environment in a way where I can guarantee I'm not going to feel shame. That I can present myself as the most presentable and good light, the best light. And this is why social media is a major tool for this purpose. I can present myself and my family as just happy and wonderful when in reality it's not true, but I can present to you myself in the best light. That's a tool for that. Uh, I can share the things that make me look good and my life good. And the world, if you want to understand the way the world's working right now with the, the so-called wokeness, all that is is trying to remove shame from very perverse things. Don't make people feel shame. Don't criticize us for what we believe and do. That's what the world's uh, doing. Hate speech is making somebody feel ashamed for things that they should feel ashamed about, perverse sin. Uh, Here's some of the ways, though, that the deeply rooted shame in us shows up. Uh, Shyness. Ever wonder why children, when there's no physical threat and they've had no past bad experience, want to hide from people? They hide be every parent understands this. They hide behind your, your leg and grasp onto it. Why are they afraid of people? Why are they afraid of presenting themselves before people? And adults, we just get more sophisticated with it. We want to be around those with whom we're more familiar rather than those that are strangers. It feels too awkward. It feels too exposing. And anytime we wonder what people will think of us. Oh no, what's, what are they going to think if they find out this? Or, or how are people perceiving me? I want them to perceive me well. I might be judged and looked down upon. Uh, anytime we try to anticipate any negative thoughts about us, uh, in, in fear of being judged, and we preemptively correct them. Well, I, I know it, I sound crazy when I say this, but it's not true. Or, or when our ability to make ourselves presentable is out of our control. You know, our kids act up and people are looking at us and, oh no, are people going to think I'm a bad parent? Or what if someone comes over when my house is a mess? When that happens, we really try to clean it up and we make all these uh, excuses in the sense of, oh, it's, it's not usually like this. It was, it was a bad day. It, uh, you know, I, I, and then we make jokes about it. I guess that just describes my chaotic life. <laughs> You know, we're trying to cover our shame, things that we don't think are presentable, that reflect well on us when we do that. And usually telling a lot of jokes, nervous laughter, pointing out outward things is due to feeling shame. It feels awkward and not dignified, and so we treat it as such. Uh, another indicator of shame is anger. Uh, Ed Welch says, look under anger and fear, and you will find a root of shame. You see, the reason why the person responds in anger is because they feel exposed. They feel like their dignity and worth is being diminished. And they have no cover. They have no defense. And therefore, they get what we call defensive. They're trying to cover themselves. They're trying to say, no, I'm actually not 
as bad as you're making me feel. And that, that anger and that raising one's voice is an attempt to get them to stop. So they feel back into a corner. Another way is fear of failure. Uh, what, if, uh, what if I have a failed performance in my job? Or a project or a particular goal? What if I fail in this? I can't fail in this because that will reflect on me as a failure. And that's shame. And so I need to be all in and all focused on this thing to make sure that I don't fail in it. Because that is what covers my shame. That is my, my covering. Or what if, I tried, what if I make something and try to sell it and it doesn't sell? Thus saying something about my worth and making me feel rejected. Or what if I can't maintain my figure? I have to do everything in my power to look good because that is my value. That is my goodness. That is my beauty. That is my dignity. That does not make me feel like a reject, but makes me feel presentable. Now, whatever you do, doing it heartily unto the Lord, exercise, staying fit, those are not bad things in and of themselves. But when they're used as a covering, when they're used to cover my shame, to give me worth and value, that is a fig leaf to cover our shame. Another way that shame shows up is when one feels rejected. Uh, this is usually what the wife experiences when her husband is not showing her love. He may not be actively harsh with her. In fact, he may not even be around that much. But he definitely shows her that she is not that important when he pursues so many other things above her. His work, hobbies, other interests that take priority over her. These things are fervently pursued, but not her. Thus, that makes her feel rejected and worthless, and therefore, shame. I'm not so valuable. Clearly, you love these other things more than me. And this is even worse when he is harsh with her and says critical things of her, never really giving his love and affection to her. As she wants to find her acceptance and value in his love. But having him recognize her as valuable and beautiful. But when he doesn't, or when he does something that rejects her beauty and value, one of the most hurtful ways is lusting after another woman. The deep sense of rejection and contamination sets in. And the relationship is defiled. And what she is experiencing is called shame. She says, well, I was not good enough. I didn't measure up to this. And I am now rejected. And that feeling of contamination, shame, rejection all comes in. And when the man is, is not respected or he gets criticized, he too feels a deep sense of shame and rejection and responds either with anger or withdrawal. And sometimes that rough and toughness and gruffness is really just a cover for rejection. And never having experienced tender love. What brings shame is when we are treated like less than a human, when our dignity and worth is degraded. Uh, it is when we get rejection, when we get mistreated, when we are violated, 
when we were treated contrary to having dignity and worth. Now, even the use of pornography and some very degrading acts associated with that flows out of shame. Feeling like a dirty, rejected thing makes you want to do dirty and degrading things. If you have been abused, especially sexually, you will have some of the most crippling shame there is. You were greatly violated and treated like an object of rejection, little or no worth, greatly degraded in a very intimate part of yourself. And that's some of the most difficult shame to deal with. You were told that you are like garbage by somebody's actions. And then there's the, the patriarchal movement in legalistic and fundamental circles uh, that treat women with this kind of degradation. Uh, women are viewed as really unworthy and with less dignity and worth and honor than men. And so those who have faced these things undergo crippling shame. If you have grown up in a legalistic home or church, even if you did not face uh, certain kinds of abuse, uh, then you will struggle with shame. Because one of the main methods of legalism is to shame you. It's to use shame. It's what we call guilt trip. Um, you into obedience. You're always trying to get approval, acceptance, and avoid rejection. And trying to avoid being judged and labeled as unclean by following the rules and working hard to become obedient so that you can be accepted, approved of, and so that you can avoid being labeled as an outcast, an outsider, and unclean, and so that your conscience no longer condemns you. But it's never good enough. And this becomes wearisome, and you can just end up kind of giving up. You just follow your own rules as, as, so as to not come under the burden of shame and having a, you end up having a difficult time in church. Because of the burden of guilt associated with this. And you end up having to find a way to deal with that guilt, just harden your conscience so as to just survive. And shame is what is behind suicide, suicidal thoughts, self harm. Because I feel like a rejected thing with no dignity and worth, I want to die. I want to punish myself. Shame is crippling and really at the heart of many issues. One of the top pains that is carried through adulthood is being rejected by one's parents, especially one's father. They will say things like, I was just never good enough. I could never perform well enough to get his approval and love. The person may learn to live with it, but the scars of rejection remain. A person is desperate for affirmation, can't stand criticism, becomes embittered and closed off in self-protection. I hope this shows you how big of a problem shame is. Now, how does one overcome shame? Well, like Adam and Eve in the garden, 
our natural tendency to overcome it is with fig leaves. We try to cover ourselves with the work of our hands. It's our own efforts to try to make ourselves presentable. We try to perform well enough to get approval, acceptance, and affirmation so that we don't feel like a rejected, defiled thing. We try to seek for honor, praise, and glory based on the works of our hands, the things we do, because we want honor, which is the opposite of shame. Or we try to guarantee our acceptance that we will never be rejected or experience the shame of the past again by trying to ensure we control our situation. So we're very vigilant, on the lookout, on guard, closely watching people because we are afraid of being rejected and shamed again. Or we seek to heap up judgment and condemnation to shame others, to vindicate ourselves. And even those who have been in an abusive situation, we always want to bring those people out of that situation for their safety. Always. We never tell somebody to go back to it. But even after coming out of it, there's a lingering shame. There's a lingering, there's lingering issues. So how is that dealt with? What is the ultimate answer to our shame? It's being treated like this and for us to have done things that are filthy. Well, the answer is in our passage today, and it's this. He is not ashamed. Christ is not ashamed. I'm not talking about himself. Of course, he's not ashamed of himself. But about you. He is not ashamed of you. When Christ thinks of you, dear believer, no shame comes to his mind. Why should you feel shame about yourself when he feels no shame about you? In fact, he unashamedly, joyfully, and eagerly presents you to God as his very own. Behold, I and the children whom you have given me. He became incarnate that he may suffer not only your guilt, but also your shame, taking it all away. Have you ever thought about that? Why didn't Christ just die quietly in a corner? No, he had to die publicly and in the most shameful way possible, naked and hung on a cross, while he's being mocked and insulted and spit upon. Why was that part of his substitutionary work for us? Because not only was he taking the punishment, the wrath of God for our sin, he was also taking all our shame away so that we would be presented before the Father, holy and blameless and above reproach, without any shame whatsoever, where the Father speaks well of us. No condemnation, no blemish, nothing whatsoever, so that we would be vindicated on the day of judgment. This must be our identity. 
not what's happened to us in the past, not the things that we have done that are filthy and dirty, not the way we feel. This must be our identity. That we are His sons who are brought to glory. The glory that is to be revealed in us, the opposite of shame, shining like the sun in His kingdom. This is what must be deep in our hearts. This must be our identity. We cannot ultimately rely on mere men to cover our shame and give us honor and worth, even though they are required to by God's law, and we are required to give it to others. Rather, we must rely on Christ and His work in the Incarnation, the Gospel, to cover our shame, to know that we are destined for glory, not because of anything we have done or wrought in us, but because of Christ. Because we have His very robes of righteousness on. And this delivers us from the deep shame we feel because of our own sin and the sin done against us. And then we are freed to truly love others rather than hide or seek to present ourselves to others or to protect ourselves from others in hopes that we will gain approval and avoid being shamed. So now we get to, again, this is not the start of the sermon, okay? We're halfway over. Three truths of the incarnation to help overcome our shame. First is that Christ is present with us. The second is his personal trust. And third, he presents us to the Father. And these are going to go quickly. So first, Christ is present with us. Verse 11. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. This is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. So you remember from last week, uh, have one source is not in the original Greek. It means they are all of one or share one thing in common. Given the context about Christ taking on our humanity, being made for a little while lower than the angels, uh, putting on our own flesh, what he shares in common with us is our own humanity. And that is why he's not ashamed to call us brothers. Because he is in our very own likeness. And why he's not ashamed to call, uh, call his brothers a proof for that, the Hebrew writer gives three Old Testament quotes. The first is in verse 12 from Psalm 22, 22. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. I'm going to focus on this next week. This, the whole sermon will be on this verse next week. But what this is talking about is Christ in the midst of the congregation, that is the assembly, those gathered for worship. And these are the ones whom he calls brothers, uh, believers, the congregation, not just all humanity, but particularly uh, us. And the fact that, that Christ is with us, uh, declaring uh, God's name to us, preaching to us, singing with us, shows that he is not ashamed of us. Some of you may have experienced this growing up in, in school. There's a kind of a reject, an outcast, a person sitting by himself or herself. And if you go over and sit next to that person, you're going to share in that person's status. 
Like, oh, you're just like them. You're, you're a reject like them. And that might make you ashamed. So, oh, I don't want to be associated with that person. I don't want to be associated with cool kids. Well, Christ is not ashamed of us. And the reason being is because not only did he take on our own humanity, but we know he's not ashamed of us. It's because he is with us now. He gathers with us. He is numbered uh, among us. He is with us, declaring God's name, preaching to us as long as the Word of God is accurately preached. It is Christ speaking to us, singing with us, joining us in, in our singing. Christ is not ashamed with, of us because He is here with us. Think about that every Lord's Day. Why should you not be identified by your shame? Because Christ is here with us. He is with you. And it's not because we are wonderful, pure, and perfect people. He knows our every thought and the remaining pollution within. In fact, He is sanctifying us as verse 11 says. You need sanctification when you have remaining unholiness and pollution. He knows that, but He doesn't respond by being repulsed by you, withdrawing from you, shaming you. But He responds by being with you, here with you, singing with you, preaching to you. He meets with us every Lord's Day and speaks to us of God's goodness and sings with us. He joins us as one of us. He is unashamed of us. So we know that He is not ashamed of us because He is present with us. A second truth of the Incarnation, really to help overcome our shame, is His personal trust Verse 13a, and again, I will put my trust in him. This second Old Testament quote comes from Isaiah 8.17. And I think it just goes to show how the Holy Spirit interprets the, the Scriptures. Because if you read, read Isaiah 8, you would say, well, where is this coming from? How is this referring to Christ? Yet there's some indicators. Uh, the prophecy about Emmanuel, uh, a virgin being born or giving birth to a child was a sign, pointing forward to Christ. talks about sanctifying the Lord in our hearts. Peter takes that as a reference to Christ. And then he's going to become a stumbling block and also a refuge. And again, First Peter says that refers to Christ. And so I will put my trust in him as Christ speaking. Christ puts his trust in God. And the word used here means to entrust oneself to another's cure. To rely on someone to take care of you and protect you with the expectation that that person will. And I think this is important to grasp. Christ as one of us, in our own flesh, in our own likeness, like us in every way except for sin, had to rely on God the Father his whole life. And God did fully supply with him everything he needed by giving him the Spirit without measure. There seems to be, I think, a tendency to think of Christ as kind of he had a deity switch that he would flip on and off. Okay, now I'm going to act in my divinity. I'm going to know your thoughts. Flip on. Ah, now I know what you're thinking. I just showed you your hearts. Okay, now I'm hungry. Flip off. Now I don't know the day and hour of uh, my return. You know, flip. I just keeps flipping it on and off. I'm acting my deity, now I'm acting my humanity. However, the whole time while remaining true God, 
He acted in His humanity. In some mysterious way, He veiled His glory. But He walked the whole time in His humanity. And that means He had to trust God the Father like any of us would. He had to trust God for His care, believe His promise, have confidence in that God would deliver Him from His enemies in death. And this is why Hebrews 5.7 says, In the days of His flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to Him who was able to save Him from death. And He was heard because of His reverence. This reveals that Jesus is a true human. and Why He's not ashamed to call us His brothers. Being one of us in our own likeness. That he had to depend fully on the Father and His humanity just like us, except He did it perfectly. A third and final truth of the Incarnation to help overcome our shame is that He presents us to the Father. Verse 13b, And again, Behold, I and the children God has given me. So this is Isaiah 8.18, which comes right after Isaiah 8.17, where it says, I will put my trust in Him. Previous quote. Uh, This is a beautiful picture that we really need to grasp and meditate deeply on. This reveals that Christ is not ashamed of us because He, with delight and joy, presents us to the most distinguished being there is. God. Maybe some of you siblings, oh, there, there's this really cool kid. And I don't want this cool kid to know that this is my brother because he embarrasses me. I don't want to be associated with him. I don't want to say, hey, this is my brother. This is my friend or whatever. Well, Christ, for sending us to the most distinguished being there is, God, says, here, I want to present these to you. Behold, I and the children whom you have given me. And this is children in the sense of being his offspring, Isaiah 53, being born again of his spirit, being given to him by the Father. He is not ashamed to present us. He is not ashamed of us. He came for us, assuming our humanity, becoming one of us to redeem us, suffering His whole life for us, culminating in the worst suffering that anyone could face, the wrath of God, so that He may present us to God with Him. As even being one of us, behold I and the children whom You have given Me. After putting His trust in the Father, He did this for us to have us as His own, as His reward. This is because, as John 17 says, He desires us to be where He is. With Him. To see His glory. You, of course, want to go to heaven to be with Christ. But do you understand that Christ wants you to go to heaven to be with Him? In fact, in his high priestly prayer, he said, Father, I desire this. He prayed for it. And we see that in we see that in this verse where he unashamedly presents us to the Father, saying, Here I am with these my beloved children. 
I am eager to show them to you as a man is eager to show one of his prized possession because we are his prized possession. As, as Zephaniah 3.17 says, He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. And as Isaiah 62.5 says, As a bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so your God rejoices over you. You have no need to fear being rejected, shamed or not loved. Because your husband, Christ in heaven, perfectly loves you. In Christ, anything that makes you feel shame has been forever has forever been removed. As Ephesians 5 says, he presents us, the church, his beloved bride, in splendor. In splendor. Radiant. Without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. No more is there any reason to be ashamed or feel shame. Because there is no spot, wrinkle, or blemish, or any such thing. We are more than presentable in Christ. Shining like the sun, as Jesus says in Matthew 13. If we could get a glimpse of what we will be, I think our shame would all, would, would all vanish. The sin that we feel so repulsed by, that we feel filthy and contaminated by, that weighs us down with guilt, causing us to hide, causing us to not draw near to God. The shameful ways we were treated, like a piece of garbage, the disregard, the, de the, the devalue, the violations that make us feel worthless, defiled, ugly, repulsive, being haunted regularly by them, seeking some honor and beauty to be clothed with, clothed with won't hold a candle to what we are in Christ and what we will be when Christ returns, when we radiate His resplendent beauty and glory. It's not merely that we will be naked and unashamed. Rather, we will be clothed with beauty and glory like the priests of the Old Testament, being a priesthood of believers. We will be vindicated and honored by God before the whole world, both men and angels. No longer will eyes look at us to judge and reject us. No longer will there be shame that causes us to want to hide. But we will be a sight to see. A trophy of Christ's work and grace bringing many sons to glory. And Paul says in Colossians 3 that we are to think about ourselves this way so that we may put off all the shameful ways of of the flesh and no longer be identified with the shame that has been done to us. Paul says when Christ who is your life appears, you also will appear with Him in glory. He goes on to immediately conclude from this, therefore, in light of this, put to death what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk in your mouth, and lying. Paul says when we consider who we are in Christ, 
which will be revealed when he, re- when he comes back in glory. Who we are in Christ, in glory. Paul says, put off the filthy ways that do not line up with who you are in Christ. Because you are no longer a piece of filth. You are no longer a shamed, rejected thing. Even though we should be. But in Christ, we are received, we are honored, we are glorified. And therefore, we live in light of that. And so we do not seek to vindicate ourselves, try to rely on men to honor us, ensure that we will not be shamed, living in crippling fear and thus uh, still enslaved to men. Rather, as we embrace that we are loved by Christ, bestowed with honor and glory by Him, and will forever be a beautiful and splendid object of His love. We do not seek an identity and worth in anything here. Looks, working out, job performance, loved and affirmed by others, knowledge, skill, or abilities. Rather, we rest in who we are in Christ. Trusting that He took all our guilt and shame away. And being confident in the words of Psalm 34, 5, that all who look to Him are radiant. Their faces shall never be ashamed. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask You to help us to believe these things. Help our unbelief. Our experience of our sin and what's been done to us feels so much more powerful and real than these realities declared to us, these eternal realities that we will experience for all of eternity, declared to us in your scriptures. Help our unbelief. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You have been listening to a message from Trinity Bible Church in Powell, Wyoming. To receive more information about Trinity Bible Church or to support the ministry, go to tbcwyoming.com. That is tbcwyoming.com.